following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. A little bit of introduction to the situation, the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, we are talking about times in the life of the people of Israel. A little bit before 722 B.C., Hosea lived and ministered for a long time, about 50 years. I mean, a prophet that has seen a lot in his life. And here he described the behavior of the people of Israel, especially the kingdom of Israel. Remember, the kingdom was divided, the kingdom of Israel and also the kingdom of Judah. Now, how many tribes were in the kingdom of Judah? Good. That's good. <laughs> Where was Jesus born? Good. Some people say Nazareth. No, he grew, grew up there. He was not born there. Okay, good. So, Hosea is looking at the situation, the lifestyle of the people. And here he's speaking about a group of, a group of people, the king of Israel, that politically and economically, they, they did well. And they really thought that they can maneuver the powers around them and to move them the way they want. And here, when economically they, they, economically they, were, they flourished, they thought, great, if we are flourishing economically, so we must do something good in the eyes of the law. And here, when everything was good with them, they worshipped more and more idols. Not God, Jehovah. Idols. The situation was so bad that God really sent the prophets and told the people they are so bad. I personally do not recall time that God sent prophets to tell the people, you are excellent, just keep on going. <laughs> really think about it. The moment God come and tell you, hey, you are my prophet. <laughs> Is there another job description in heaven somewhere? No. Just be the prophet. Tell the people that they are doing wrong. And if the people would say, thank you, great, how can we fix it? Then everyone would like to be a prophet. But that was not the case with the people of Israel. So here, the people are going astray, and God said, I'm going to punish you. And if God will just be justice, just show justice and be righteous with the people, no one will be left. I repeat. If God will give the people of Israel, according to their doings, rightfully, only according to his righteousness, no one will be left. And God must show his grace so people will be there. Now, since the people of Israel need to show his greatness, he promised to the people of Israel there are some things still need to be come through the people of Israel. So God keep the people of Israel for his name's sake. Not because we deserve it. Since the people of Israel are going astray, and if you leave them by themselves, there will be no more people of Israel. Therefore, God takes a stand. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. And therefore, the verse starts with the word, guess what? Therefore. Now, it's not a joke, it's real. 
check your Bible. In verse 14, it says, no, I'll say it in Hebrew, just translate it from Hebrew, and check your Bible, then I'll read also from English, don't worry. Therefore, here I tempted her and walked her to the desert, and I will speak on her heart. That's literal Hebrew, but in English. Now read it in your language. In verse chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allow her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. Verse 15, I'll read until 18. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. It's beautiful English, but you miss all the colors in Hebrew. But we'll deal with it later. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. Amen. So in verse 14, we see that God is saying, therefore I allure her, that means tempt her, and walk her to the desert and speak to her heart. Now if a sentence starts with the word therefore, at least the rules in the Hebrew grammar means it's a result of something that happened before. Is it also the same in English? Please say yes. yes. Good. <laughs> Otherwise, I need to change all my words here. So I hope it's the same. So because of what you have done before, I need to take a stand. By God's grace, things like these are going to happen. If God will not do that, woe to the people. So after punishment took place in the life of the people of Israel, I just give you a kind of shortcut of what was. After the people were punished, after the people have lost everything, we're going to deal with it, time of peace is going to come. Yes, the good news is there will be peace. The bad news, <laughs> wait. So the issue is what kind of events are going to happen before this willful peace, before this peace for all the people of Israel that will be left. So it says very clear, God is going to tempt the people of Israel to walk to the desert, and there is going to speak to their heart that exactly what the verse say. Now, since God never tempted in evilness, I'll repeat, God never tempt you and push you to do something evil. God may allow temptation to be. You can make every temptation to a downfall or to a success. Never ever come with a finger to God. He will simply eat your finger. 
He is never wrong. He simply doesn't do anything wrong. So basically, God is going to make a situation where going to the desert will be the most logical and correct thing to do in the eyes of the people. That's what it means. I will create a situation in your life, in the nation life, that running to the desert will be the only open and logical door. That's the idea. And there, in the desert, look around. I've been to the desert many times. I'll tell you something. You look 360 degrees and the same view. <laughs> the same absolutely yellow dust. No reference point. Nothing. And where you have nothing to look at, now it's the best time to do one-on-one -on -one with the Lord. It's like having kids in the class. The moment you have moving things on the wall and nice pictures, what do you think the kids are doing? <laughs> I mean, it's impossible to speak to them. You just wipe the walls and everything is just white. There is nothing there. And then the kids look at you like that. That's exactly what God is doing to the people of Israel. That's what it is. So, uh, you know, when you teach the Bible, there are always the smart guys that will tell you, ah, a desert? Who says it's a desert? Maybe it's a symbolic. <laughs> Most of what is called the Christian world thinks like that. Now I have a shock. God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, God, Abraham didn't think it's a spiritual son. He woke up in the morning and did the job. If I'll tell my son, go and buy bread, and he will tell me, Father, the bread of life, I will spank his face. <laughs> so you see, as we laugh when we hear something logical, guess how much God can be angry when we are playing with him in the same way. But there are those who ask, spiritual desert? Okay. Let's say it is a spiritual desert. Is the rest of the verse fit into it? If it's a spiritual desert, then they're going to, to be captives in Assyria. That's the desert. Well, immediately after coming from Syria, I don't see that the people have listened to God and changed their lives. I don't see that the rest of the verses took place and have been fulfilled. On the other hand, if you take it literally, actually there are many other places in the Bible who speak about the fact that the people of Israel, the leftover during the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, will flee to the desert, literal desert, for 1,260 days, which are 42 months, which are three and a half years. Why do you think Isaiah 63, 1 to 6, describe the Messiah, God, who says, who is coming from Edom, from Botsra? What did he lose there? Why should he go to the desert after landing on the Mount of Olives? What do you have in the desert? My family. 
I go to take them and bring them back to the promised land, clean from enemies. And when they shall look at him, it's all covered with blood. And he tells them, what do you think this blood is? It's when I stepped on the enemies and all the splashes of their blood came upon me. This is the situation. This is the issue. So I personally believe that, yes, when he says, I'm going to take them to the desert, it's speaking about these three and a half years, the second part, the last three and a half years in the tribulation, which are altogether seven years, from the middle to the end. Many of the Israelites will run to the desert for shelter. Why? Because from the middle, this Antichrist will enter to the temple and then they will understand the big mistake they have done. If you can divide the tribulation, the first three and a half years, Antichrist defends Israel. The last three and a half years, Antichrist runs after Israel, not to give them an ice cream. <laughs> so they flee. They understand it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, from verse 15. If you will see the abomination and so on, is relating to Daniel, chapter 9. Just to put the picture, the puzzle together. So, according to these verses, and understanding that the only time people of Israel will run to the desert in the tribulation, I do believe that here in Hosea, God is saying through the mouth of Hosea, these verses relate to the time of the tribulation. Because there is no other place in the word of God that the people are running to the desert, and when they come from there, there is the rest of the verses. That's all. It's good sometimes to bring up a commentary through, or understanding through an elimination. Can it be that? No, it's against this part of the Bible. Can it be that? No, it's against that part of the Bible. And if you come up with an idea that fits, most likely you have a bingo. And by the way, another rule, the first rule you hear in the Bible is, if it makes sense, if the words make sense, please don't look for another sense. That will cover 99% of all your dilemmas. So, you know, sometimes God really mean what he say? Let's see, let's see, let's see. Yes, now the question is, why would they give it, they will send them to the desert, or what's going to happen to Israel in the desert? Um, we all speak about the mighty power of the IDF and so on. But please understand, that when you speak with the soldiers who return from the most sophisticated operations, you know, to, you know what they will tell you? It was a pure miracle. In every operation, there are problems. And every time the soldiers come back and say, you wouldn't believe, this didn't work, that didn't work, and only because the enemies are, who knows what, we succeeded. Or only because they were blind, we succeeded. That's how they speak. In the operation in Gaza, did you know that 200 soldiers have captured a school and slept there through the night? In the morning, one of them realized they are sleeping all night on explosives. I'm not joking. They found the button. The guy fled away, so he didn't push it. It was all, all the school, 
was sitting on explosives. They only need that one stupid guy will come and push the button, and here goes 200 soldiers. With all the sophisticated army and everything. What really saves us? God, by your grace. Can we attack Iran? Maybe yes. And then what? Another lunatic will come day after. So what? The issue is, the, are we calling God or just trying to bring up another weapon? What do you think? We are going to be always wiser? One day there will be a limit. If God is not with us, you can take your most sophisticated something and nothing work. So the people of Israel are trusting their brains. Their wisdom, trusting the money, trusting the weapon. And what does it say in Jeremiah 9, 22 to 23? I will take all these three things from you. And when you will not have money to pay, and you will not have the weapon to fight, and you will not have the might to succeed, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to listen like a small kid. And that's exactly what happens in the desert. Why do you think you are in the desert? Because you're in bankruptcy. I said with a broken heart, but that's the situation. Let's, let's be honest. If you will be so smart, so mighty, so whatever, you will sit in your Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. And Antichrist will be there. Now you understand that he bewitched you. That he tricked you. Now you ask yourself, what have I done? Too late. So when God comes and speaks to you, walk in your heart, you listen. That's why they are there in the desert. Not just to look at the view. Now in the desert, they are going to understand the word of God. Yes. In these three and a half years in the desert, they are going to know a lot. They are going to fill up the blanks which they didn't do for so much time. Because when Christ returns, after three and a half years, they will recognize him. I repeat. Upon Christ's return, they will recognize him. Everyone will see him the day he comes because the light that will be involved in everything, the blood of the horses of the enemies that will come up to the desert as a river of blood, they will know what it means. And you wonder, how would they know? How would they know him? I'll give you some options. One of the options is, today you speak with your Jewish friends. Correct or not? Please say yes. But today they tell you, we don't want to hear. Maybe in a different vocabulary, but that's what it means. <laughs> but they listen. They listen. One day they'll remember what you told them. So keep speaking. Salvation comes through hearing of the word of God through the gospel. There is no other way. Not for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. We're all the same in that. Romans 10, 17. So one thing is, what we do today is evangelism worldwide. That's the tools that later on will click in the, some of their brains. Another thing, the 144,000 are going to speak. And they have immunization in, in that way that 
No one can kill them. So they will speak and share the gospel. They are going to hear the gospel from Gentiles who have been saved through the tribulation, after the rapture. They are going to hear it from the angel in heaven, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. They are going to hear it from the two witnesses in Revelation 11. You see, God's grace is so much. You kill one option, God gives you five others. Why? Because of his love. Sharing the gospel, it's showing love. Giving a hug and clothes without the gospel, it's anti-Semitism. I'll say it again, because if you hate me, at least know for why. <laughs> if you just hug and give food and will do everything or be against sharing the gospel to the Jew or to anyone else, that's the opposite of love. That's hatred. Some do it without knowing, but that's the bottom line. If this is the gospel, there are many ways to deliver. It can be with a hug, with food, with many ways. But doing all these many ways without the gospel, waste of time. The person will go to hell well-dressed and fed. That's not what we want. And it doesn't mean that you should not take care of the poor and give him what he needs. Don't misunderstand me. But never hide your faith in Christ. Never hide it. If God opens the door, say it. What do you have to lose? Your life? God will give it to you back. Cynical jokes for non-believers, not for believers. So how God is going to feed them for three and a half years? Or every time we, we speak about the food, what are we going to eat in the conference? Let's see what they're going to eat in their conference. <laughs> three and a half years of a conference. So the chef has this experience. When they took him out of the, when he took the people of Israel out of, the, of, out of Egypt, he gave them manna, he gave them quails. By the way, you can cook the quails in different ways, and it can be very tasty. Um, another thing, he fed Elijah. Crows gave them meat. So you see, you have a menu. <laughs> what do I want to say by that? Don't come and say, how can they be there for three and a half years? Well, I can, how can they be there for 40 years? That's God's problem. <laughs> you know, it's good sometimes to say, that's his business, not mine. Did I send you to the desert? <laughs> Go speak with the manager. <laughs> and I say it with respect, because I absolutely trust him. That's what stands behind that kind of a talk. When we try to manage, how can he do that? You show as if you have no trust in him, as if it's too big for him. It's nothing for him. So, where is the church in all this situation? Not here. God took them before. The example is in the life of Noah. Before the flood, he was in the boat. If you check the Hebrew, God is calling him from within the ark, not from the outside. That's the Hebrew. God is in the ark and telling, come in. That's the Hebrew. With Noah, first of all, take Noah out. And then you do the rest. The church is not mentioned 
through the tribulation, chapter 6 to 19, the book of Revelation. So when you see these kind of things, it speaks about something. Revelation 3, 12, I'll keep you from the um, time of uh, troubles that were going to come upon the inhabitants of the, of the world, of the earth. That's an expression for non-believers. That's in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 12, I think, uh, to the church of Philadelphia. So what do I learn from there? God is going to speak to the people in a place where he will be the only one that they can be interested in. Now, the issue is, that's what God is going to do, the unbelieving Israel. And you know what? He can do it to each one of us today. When we do not listen to God, because each one of us has a target in life. God never created you by mistake. Oops, another Gentile. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> Listen very carefully. No one here by mistake. I mean here on the world, in the world. Each one has a soul that God created. And there are no extra souls. No spare souls. Each one he came to die for. So there is a purpose in life. If there is a purpose in life and you do not do that, God can kick you into the desert. And your desert may be something in your life that God will shake you from. To tell you, will you now listen to me? The desert is not only for the people of Israel. It can be for us today and each day. And it doesn't need to be in the Sahara or Sinai. It can be also in Winona Lake, in a closed room between you and the Lord. So, God can shake our life in order to cause us just to listen to him. It's not that he didn't speak before. It's only because we chose not to listen. So, God speaks always through what he's doing, through the word of God, through prayer. And he expects us always to open our eyes. We have the Holy Spirit, so we can recognize his fingerprint around the world. And see what God is doing, what he wants. We can fellowship. We can speak one with another. We can iron like iron sharpen ideas from the word of God. We are not orphans. So if we take all what God gave and we don't pay attention, watch out. He can throw you to the corner. Throw me to the corner and tell me, will you listen now? So remember what he can do to Israel. He can do to each one of us. Now verse 17, no, verse 15. Um, verse 15, let's see. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as the door of hope and shall sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. That's nice. It's a little bit playing on word. So, after being in the desert, because, you know, if you grow vineyards in the desert, that's not the most wise thing to do. So the idea is that they've been into the desert, now they come back to the land, okay? The verses are jumping. You need to fill up the blanks in the verses from other places in the Bible. Now they're in the land. The millennium kingdom starts, and I will give them their vineyards. People are going to sit under the fig tree, enjoying the fruits, and so on, okay? So I will give their vineyards from the desert to the land. Now you have your vineyards. And the valley of Achor to an opening of hope. That's the Hebrew. 
opening can be similar to a door, it's not a problem. Now, what is a valley of Achor? Um, the word, um, the valley of Achor, is mentioned in the Bible four times. One of them, of course, is Hosea. That one is Joshua chapter 7, chapter 15, and Isaiah 65. In Joshua chapter 7, it was in the place where they took Ahan, when he took the loot from Jericho, remember? And they um, stoned him, they burned him, they called the area Emek Achor. Now, what is Achor? Is there anyone here who have an aquarium for fish at home? Yes or not? Who? You. Some of you, good. Now, what happens if you do not clean the aquarium for a month? Huh? No, you're going to see UFOs in the water. <laughs> so the idea, the water is so greenish, and you see something is moving until you will die, of course. Yes, and finally you will die. But that's the idea. How do you call dirty water, as I describe it in Hebrew, maim achurim? That means that you cannot see through. That's the idea. Filthy valley. Emek achor, a valley of filth, but spiritual filth. Nothing is clean there. Woe for you if you will drink from it. Woe to you if you will live there. There is nothing good there. That's the idea behind it. And while in the time of Joshua it spoke about a specific area geographically, and later on in different location, here he speaks about all the place of Israel, all the land of Israel, without God within you. While you against me, all your land is a valley of filth. It will be an opening of hope. If I'm there. That's the difference. So remember, don't worship just the ground. Worship the Lord when you step on this ground. So that's what he says. From a valley of filth to an opening of hope. By the way, Petar Tikva, it's the name of a city next to Tel Aviv. I'm sure some of you have been there, so it's also a city there. And they will sing there, as she sang in the time of her youth, as she went out of Egypt. When the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea and they saw the armies of Egypt sinking, they sang to the Lord. Remember that? The song of Miriam. When do they sing? When they have seen something God-sized. I remember once I went to the Dead Sea with a friend of mine, he bought a new 4x4 Mitsubishi Jeep, and he wanted to show that he can do some races uh, to show me his new car. After a few seconds, it sunk. <laughs> Half of the Jeep was under the sand. I'm not joking. It was devastating. How do you take it? <laughs> we cannot. Oi, oi, oi. So, here we are trying to pull the jeep, and we saw a big semi-trailer behind us, somewhere around. We looked for the driver. He came, and he was willing to help us. So he came closer to the jeep, and as we look at the jeep, there is no semi-trailer. Half of the semi-trailer is under. <laughs> to make it short, we went to Jericho before the Intifada. We went to Jericho, rented a taxi, pulled up chains, called a tractor owner, another truck to lift up the tractor, then the tractor come, 
put the mud there in order to come down, all the kind of logic, at 10 o'clock at night. He pulls the truck out. We were there early morning. I jumped like a small kid. And that's only because of a semi-trailer out of the mud. Now imagine how they are going to sing when they will see God on earth starting his kingdom, building his own temple. And they can come to visit him. They will sing every day, all the day. He is going to build his temple, not the temple of the Antichrist. If you read through tribulation, all the earthquakes and all the events and the fact that the mount of the Lord is going to be higher of all the others. And when God says the mount of the Lord is higher from all the others, I take it literally. Blame me. So that means a lot of geographical change is supposed to be. And there is no engineering today to build something that can survive it and say, I didn't feel it. So when he's going to come to Mount of Olives, he's going to split. And by the way, Mount of Olives and Mount Moriah, it's 500 meter air distance. You cannot do an earthquake, and 500 meters from you, people will sit in restaurants. Therefore, there will be nothing of that. Christ will bring his own. Zechariah 6, 12. He will bring his own. That's Tzemach. That's the branch. He doesn't need the other ones. It will be filthy. He will bring something which will be very, very clean. So, another one, because I really want that we will see some of the playing on words. Yes, verses 16 to 18. And it says, In that day you will call me my master and you will not call me my husband. That's what your English says, right? Now I'll read the Hebrew. Please listen very carefully. It's a playing on words. And it will be in that day, you will call me Ishi, my master. It's a synonym to my husband. My man, actually. And you shall not call me anymore Baali. Baali in the modern Hebrew and the ancient Hebrew means my husband. Now where is the playing on words? And I will remove the names of the idols from her mouth. And they shall not be remembered anymore in their name. And I shall have a covenant with them. Um, just a second. And they shall not... Ah, yes. And I will take away the name of the Baalim. Baals in your English, correct? What is the name of the idol god? Baal. Now, what is the word Baal in Hebrew? Husband. So, the issue is as follows. He is my husband. <laughs> Don't say this. Why? But he's my husband. Don't say that. Why? Because it's the same word to say an idol. When Christ will be here, people will watch their words. They will prefer to use other vocabulary. Instead of saying Baali, my husband, because it's the same name, like to say my idol god Baal, I will say my man. So much will be the closeness to the Lord and the submission to him that even to say not clean word from the mouth, I prefer not to say. I'll choose another vocabulary. It's similar or parallel to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1 to 6, that describe how much the people will love the Lord. So much that if my son will come and say, 
something to prove that he is a false prophet, I will cut his neck at home that my shame will not be outside. I'll prefer to lose my son rather than the name of God will be jeopardized. This is Zechariah 13, 1 to 6. This is how much the people will repent, truly repentance. And it will continue from chapter uh, Zechariah 12, from 10 and up. They shall see the one they have pierced. And there will be mourning and repentance, family by family, by family by family. It will not be that the high priest just come and say to the Lord, the nation is okay, and everyone is going to the disco behind him. No. Family by family, husband and wife and the kids, husband, wife and the kids, H1, everyone, it will go from the top to the bottom. National repentance. And therefore it will be the ultimate day of atonement. That's the idea. It will take away even the spirit of filth from the land. That's correct. He will give us a covenant, even with, with as he says here, even with the beast of the fields. What does he talk about? We spoke about it today. Um, Isaiah chapter 11, Micah chapter 4, uh, Isaiah chapter 2. Those are all the verses that speaks about there, will be, there shall be no more war, no more bloodshed. Animals will not eat one another. Why do you think Isaiah described in Isaiah 11 that the lion will not eat uh, the animals and the wolf will be with the lamb? Well, who cares? Did any one of you lose a sleep yesterday because a lion eat a zebra in Africa? Let it eat them all together if he wants. Who is going to lose breakfast because of that? I have nothing against zebra. Don't misunderstand me. But when did you lose sleep because lions eat zebras? So the issue is, why do you mention that? Who cares? He mentioned that to show the lordship of the branch from Jesse. Because while we speak to dogs and they do what they want, he speaks to animals and they change their nature. And only God can do that. Therefore, he mentioned that. He brings it, as we heard, to Genesis, before the sin. And only God can do that. So that's the time, that's the verses we are talking about. That's Hosea chapter 2. And you know what? If you'll continue the verses at home, 19 and 20, the marriage with the Lord. The reunion of fellowship, eternally. That's so great. So in these verses, God proved his commitment to the people of Israel because he's the one who created the situation. He's the one who brings them to repentance. If he would have left them for themselves, no one would be left. So by his grace, he caused the people of Israel to repentance and to fellowship with him. God is the one who makes it because of, for his name's sake. The people of Israel trust their power their money, their wisdom. And God is going to remove everything you trust in if it's not him. Pay attention to your life. What you put trust in will be removed. Put God in the center, and then you'll see it will stay forever. So God is going to remove the things the people of Israel trust in in order for them to listen to him. 
that's where the desert come in. All the blessings God promised to Israel, all of them in full, are going to come upon, of, upon Israel, upon those who will be saved in his kingdom. Today, we can have tastes from here and there. But the ultimate promise of the, all the land, of being with the Lord and everything, will be in the millennium. Why? Because only then all Israel will be saved. So we are waiting for that. Um, God wants his children all the day, and he wants us to listen to him. And if we don't do that, he catch our face and shake it. And God has ways to shake our faces. And when the face is being shaken, the teeth hurts. <laughs> so let's encourage one another. Let's encourage one another to pray one for another, to hug one another, to lift up one another, that God will be happy with what we are doing and will not need to shake our face every day.